Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, creator, host, published author. Yeah, if you want to buy my book, you can do so at Amazon. You're shameless. I am shameless. Across the table from me is my friend Matthew. I'm excited because 199 episodes means the next episode is 200 and our Christmas special. Wow. And we were talking just before the show and I've done something like... 30 something episodes. Yeah, 34. Yeah. It doesn't, I'm having so much fun. It doesn't feel like that. There you go. Yeah. I'm glad that you're having fun. I hope the listeners are like, oh my God, he's doing another one. (laughs) (laughs) No, keep coming back, Matthew. I love it. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. (laughs) So work it. You're with it. Yeah, if you know where that's from, you're one of us. (laughs) The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. The future of dating. (laughs) Especially this episode. (laughs) No. (laughs) Could you imagine a dark poutine dating app? Yeah. No. That'd be, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, side business. Yeah. Like, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of true crime are you into? Oh, God. Right? I don't want to be responsible for somebody's death. In all the recent photos I could find of Melissa Ann Shepard, she looks like an ordinary little old lady. But Melissa, Millie to some, has a criminal record a mile long, including convictions for fraud, impersonation, and forgery, leading back years. But she is best known for luring men via the internet, drugging them, and taking control of all aspects of their lives. Melissa also caused the death of one of her husbands and was suspected in another's death And at least two more men came close to dying. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 199, Canadian Black Widow, Melissa Ann Shepard. What is a Black Widow? According to Robert Keller's True Crime Canadian Monsters, quote, Black Widows and Bluebeards are generally considered to be financially motivated killers. Their MO is usually to dupe unsuspecting victims into marrying them, often bigamously, then signing over everything they own. Once that is achieved, 
the victim is swiftly dispatched before the killer moves on to their next project. However, most of these killers have another motive. They enjoy the thrill of the hunt, entangling the victim in a web of lies, watching as they hurtled unknowingly towards their doom. It is akin to playing God, end quote. So I've heard Black Widow before, but never Blue Beard. Is that... So it's obviously a male Black Widow, right? Yes. And is that from like the Charles Perrault novel from like 1600 or something? It is the from the Charles Perrault novel from 1697. Oh, there you go. And the, in that novel, Bluebeard kills his wives and there's a room in which the most current wife is not supposed to go into because... Has the bodies? Therein lie the bodies. Okay. However, where this is from was Gilles de Ray who was a serial killer of children in France Okay. in the 1400s. Okay, that was a while ago. Yeah, so he was uh, also a contemporary of Joan of Arc. They were good friends. So it, Gilles de Ray is actually somebody who I'd like to probably cover in an away game at some point, but as a, he's the murderer of many, many children. Have I ever told you about my like fascination with Joan of Arc? No, you have not. Uh, we'll talk about it someday. Obsessed. I've read so much about her. Oh, interesting. And whenever I used to go to Paris, mm -hmm. I always lit a candle for her in the cathedral. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I'd planned on doing maybe an away game of Gilles de Ray at some point. Yeah, you should. But because there's so many child murders that he's accused of, it's kind of a tough one. I tend to steer away from child killers. We Every time I do one, I just feel awful afterward. Yeah, but it was the 1400 Still. Yeah, but they're long gone. There's generations of children yeah, who are gone. That's true. It's still difficult. It's right? still horrible. Yeah. In his book, Cold North Killers, author Lee Meller quotes criminology sources calling Black Widow's hedonist comfort killers. The characteristics of this type of killer are they are act focused, they like a controlled crime scene, there is typically no overkill evident. They do not tend to torture. The body of their victim is usually not moved. They target a highly specific victim, often a friend, relative, or acquaintance. Weapon used for the kill is often left at the crime scene. The murders are usually non-sexual. They will not strangle the victim. The killer is often female. There will be no evidence of cannibalism or vampirism. Black widows in Canada, at least, are rare. Before Melissa, there have been only four other Canadian Black Widow killers that I could find. We might talk about a couple of them on a future show, but this one is about Melissa. Melissa Ann Millie Russell was born in Burnt Church, New Brunswick on May 16, 1935. Melissa moved to Ontario and lived with an aunt where she completed high school through evening correspondence at Stafford College. When Millie was 20, she met and married her first husband, Russell Shepard, a factory worker with whom she had a son and a daughter. Eventually, the family wound up in Toronto. In an interview with CBC's Lyndon McIntyre, Melissa claimed it was Russell's diagnosis with Hodgkin's disease that led her to write her first bad check in 1971. During the interview, Melissa stated, quote, He had to take chemotherapy and radiation treatments and go through the cancer thing that they all go through. And at that time, he was unable to work 
and my first time I ever wrote a bad check or did anything that was illegal was I wrote some bad checks then, and I had to pay the rent and do basic cover for our family. My two children, myself and my husband, and he was in the hospital. He was in the Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. He had to have a lot of treatments, and he just wasn't able to keep up, you know, with the expenses of our household. End quote. Between 1971 and 1985, Melissa was charged with over 30 counts of fraud, forgery, impersonation, and other petty crimes while living in both Ontario and Prince Edward Island. She'd even been fined for littering at one point. For all those crimes, Millie had spent over five years of her life in jail. Upon her release from jail in 1985, Melissa moved back to the Atlantic provinces this time to the quaint community of Montague, PEI, her husband's hometown. But things were not close to any kind of paradise in the shepherd home. So, okay, just jump back for a second, Mike. Yes. 30 counts. Yes. I've been, as you know, a, a relatively law-abiding citizen all of my life. Yes. Right. I'm the type of person who thinks that if I ever stole as much as a chocolate bar, I'd be caught and locked away for life, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I kind of understand society and you can't stuff like this, right? Right. Okay, maybe you can help me here. How does somebody get caught 30 times? For different things. And they're still walking around. Like, isn't there sort of a, each time you keep doing it, we're going to tack on some more? No, that's not how it works here in Canada, for sure. And um, she's not a dangerous offender at this point. No one has died. She is doing those crimes that we see typically committed by females, which is interesting, which are fraud and forgery. Right. They're nonviolent. So no, there is no, if you've done it once before, it gets tacked on because there's maximum penalties for crimes Do you think because she's a woman, they let her go more often? 100%. She is a a white lady. Right. And I... Little old white lady. Well, she wasn't little old by this point. She was a middle-aged white lady. Okay. And, uh, writing bad checks. Writing bad checks. Yeah, exactly. So it's a middle-aged white lady writing bad checks. We'll slap her on the wrist and hope she learns a lesson. Okay. Somehow, even with her criminal background, Melissa got a real estate license and began selling properties on the island. In 1988, while still legally married to Russell Shepard, Melissa met another man named Gordon Stewart, who owned some property on PEI. Two years later, Melissa was still married when she and Gordon were wed in one ceremony in Las Vegas and then in another in Vancouver two weeks later. The honeymoon didn't last. Things were not good between Gordon and Melissa. Gordon was known to drink a lot. Two days before Christmas at their apartment in PEI, Gordon seemed to have become delusional. He was later found having collapsed on the floor and frothing at the mouth, He was rushed to a nearby hospital where high amounts of the sedative drug benzodiazepine was found in his system. Melissa later wrote that Gordon was often violent and drunk, beating her regularly. She said, On one occasion, he held a loaded handgun to my head and pulled the trigger. The firing pin jammed in the gun, saving my life. I called the police. He was charged with the careless discharge of a firearm. They seized his guns, and when he went to court, he was prohibited from having any firearms for five years. End quote. In early 1991, after a drunken altercation, Gordon Stewart was charged with and pleaded guilty to assaulting Melissa. He served some time in jail. Melissa came to visit him while he was locked up. 
On March 26, 1991, as part of his release, a probation order for Gordon stipulated that he was to have no contact with Melissa. However, over the next two weeks, she initiated contact with Gordon a number of times. A month later, Melissa and Gordon Stewart relocated to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Perhaps a change of scenery would be good. Apparently it was not, as a week later, Gordon Stewart, 44, was dead, and Melissa was suspected in his death. Melissa claimed that her husband had brought her out to a deserted Nova Scotia road where he then raped her in the woods. When the drunken Gordon Stewart had later gotten out of the car to go behind it for a pee, she saw her chance and took it. She claimed she didn't mean to run him over when she did. According to CBC News, in an interview, Melissa said, quote, I did not mean to kill Gordon. I only wanted to get away from him. When he was standing behind the car, urinating, I sensed that it was my only chance to get away. I slid over under the driver's wheel, turned on the ignition very quickly, and put the car in gear. But I put it in the wrong gear. I put it in reverse instead of forward. I backed the car over him, and then I left the area at a very high speed. I just wanted to get out of there. We were on a logging road in the woods. I very much regret what happened on that day. I believe my survival can only be credited to luck. Knowing she had been seen speeding away from the area by two witnesses, she reported the events herself three hours later. Gordon had been run over, though, twice. And a talk screen of his blood later determined that he had high amounts of benzodiazepines, Valium and Restoral, in his system, as well as alcohol. It appeared that the level of intoxication might have caused Gordon's death even without having been first run over. Police investigators disputed Melissa's claims that Gordon was the aggressor and that Millie was acting in fear of her life. They surmised that she had drugged and immobilized her husband and laid him on the little-used highway before running him over intentionally. Melissa told Lyndon McIntyre, quote, He was certainly mobile because we went to the restaurant and had something to eat, and that was in Shubenacadie in Nova Scotia. We were driving around most of that day. This happened like later in the day, more towards the evening. So he was certainly mobile. A person can drink a lot of alcohol and tolerate a lot of alcohol in one day and they can still remain functional and moving and mobile, end quote. Police also stated that there was no evidence indicating that a sexual assault had taken place, and a physical exam showed that to be true. There was no evidence of a sexual assault, and there was no dirt on Millie's clothing. A tracking dog could find no signs of anyone having been in the woods where she claimed she had been raped. Millie explained this away, telling Lyndon McIntyre that Stewart had been too drunk to penetrate her sexually. She said, quote, He was drinking shaving lotion at the time. Shaving lotion is what he was drinking, mainly. It wasn't something that I told him to drink. It's something he wanted to drink himself. To say that he raped me doesn't mean he has to have sexual intercourse with me. That means he could have performed other kinds of sex on me that is considered rape. End quote. This pisses me off, Mike. What pisses you off about it? Okay, we have a problem in society with rape victims not being believed. That's right, yeah. Or heard. Remember the big hashtag me too movement a couple of years ago yes really important very important finally getting a conversation about this yes right so i'm not saying that she did or didn't 
get raped here. Yes. But she's kind of proving herself to be a pathological liar. Yeah, she has told a few fibs in her life, yeah. So, and I probably, they'll find out later that she wasn't, because she's, uh, we're doing an episode on on a murderer here. She has run a person over at this point. Yes. And it would benefit her to paint a picture that justifies that person's death. What I cannot stand. Yes is when people cry wolf about these sorts of things Mm -hmm. because it destroys the person that they're accusing. Right. Secondly, it makes the people, men and women both, who have a hard enough time being believed already, mm-hmm. it just, it muddies that water. And that upsets me so much because real victims are having a really hard time already. Right. Now, I don't expect somebody like this woman to actually think about anyone or anything other than herself. Right. Right. So it's just such a shame. I agree. And it is this kind of case where someone will say, well, look, she lied about, she perhaps lied about that. So they'll point to that as saying, well, see, uh, women l- lie women about, lie about this all yeah. the time because they're idiots, right? Yeah. So anyway, okay. That, that is not the... Okay, I'm going to calm down now. Okay, good. Even though responsible for Gordon's death, Melissa applied for Stewart's pension benefits from the Department of National Defense and Canada Pension. Ironically, at the beginning of May 1991, Melissa and Russell Shepard's divorce finally came through. She was now free to remarry had she wanted, but the courts had other plans for Melissa, who was now using Stewart as her surname. More than a year after Gordon Stewart's death, Melissa was convicted of his manslaughter. In August of 1992, the judge, stating the sentence was deterrence to the public, gave Melissa six years behind bars, which she began serving at the Prison for Women in Kingston, Ontario. There, she began running a support group for women. This led her to write about her time in jail, as well as her relationship with Gordon Stewart. Melissa claimed that although Stewart was nice at first, things went sideways quickly. In her article titled, Prison for Women's Invisible Minority, Melissa wrote, quote, What started off as a honeymoon became the worst nightmare of my life, Gordon was a violent alcoholic, as were his father and brothers. My whole life was centered around keeping this man happy. During those years of knowing him and living with him, I felt certain I could save him. He criticized me constantly, and I developed feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. I did not feel that I was capable of doing anything right. During this time, I was living in limbo and trying to fight off depression. The physical beatings started right after we were married. I wore heavy makeup to cover the contusions and bruises inflicted at various times. He would play one cruel game in which he would put a plastic bag over my head while we were having sexual intercourse and strangle me, saying he wanted me to have stronger orgasm. He would strangle me to the point where I would almost pass out. She also wrote, I lived in constant fear. I believed he was a psychopath who liked to inflict pain. He put welts all over my back by beating me with a leather strap. On other occasions, he kicked me and cracked my ribs and collarbone. My kidneys were bruised from his beatings. End quote. In the same year as her early release and full parole from prison, Melissa appeared in a 1994 National Film Board documentary about abused women titled When Women Kill. Capitalizing on the success of the film and the attention that the article she'd written behind bars had brought, Melissa set up a toll-free counseling line called Project Another Chance, targeting women having trouble adjusting to life in jail. Melissa, though, began to feel the itch. 
she started looking for another man. Melissa was still going by her late husband's surname, Stuart, when she met Robert Friedrich at a Christian retreat in Florida in March of 2000. It had been a year since his wife of 53 years died of breast cancer, and 82-year-old Robert Friedrich was ripe for the picking. Melissa spotted Robert on the stage of the church with a pastor who was leading the retreat services. She was immediately smitten. She claimed later that their love had been divinely guided, stating that the Holy Spirit had told her that the tall, good-looking man she saw there was to be her next husband. She told Lyndon McIntyre, quote, And so that was just an experience I had, but it was an experience that changed me. I began speaking in tongues, and I really felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, end quote. After her return to Canada, this vision drove Millie to send a letter, which included her photo, to Robert Friedrich soon after, expressing her love, explaining the guidance she'd received from the Holy Spirit, stating they were meant to be together. Friedrich, who couldn't believe his luck, seeing the photo of the younger woman, responded to Millie's letter. Melissa then returned to Florida to visit Robert Friedrich. Only three days after she arrived, they were engaged to be married. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so much right there. Okay. Yeah. First thing, um, three days. That's crazy. Three days. The second thing, okay. We have, well, he's a lonely older yeah, man. Yeah, I know. And he's probably thinking, I don't have much time left. I and, better get and out. And I'll tell a story about this later Later on. Like, yeah. I've, I've had some experience not being a lonely old man. I'm not that old yet. Well. But when I was helping to do the episode on Bucksbaum. Yes. Um, that was a couple, couple uh, episodes ago. Yes. In speaking to people, one thing I found was because... Bucksbaum was a member of the church. Yes. People very quickly and very easily started pointing to hypocrisy. And it kind of bothered me a bit because what I realized was bashing somebody's religion to me is the same as bashing their race or their sexuality totally or whatever. Yep. There are good and bad eggs in every segment of society. Yep. And I'd find that, you know, a lot of Christians get bashed and and they people use a oh, look look at this example of hypocrisy mm -hmm. therefore all of christianity is wrong like right. i hear that so often yeah and you can't do that right no some of my closest friends are christians lovely and you know but there's good and bad everywhere yeah well you're not going to hear about the ones that are doing a lot of good because it's not who are just, interesting or who are just normal kind people right, right? it's not interesting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's interesting are the, the twit birds who do yeah. stuff like uh, this person did yeah. and yeah. Helmuth did. Yeah. Unknown to his family, during a trip to Nova Scotia, Melissa and Robert Friedrich were married in the Dartmouth Interfaith Wedding Chapel on June 23, 2000. To say that the Friedrich children did not like Melissa at all would be an understatement. It was plain to them that she was a gold digger after their father's fortune, preying on a sad and lonely widower. As Melissa weaseled her way deep into the elderly man's life, there were many arguments back and forth between Millie and his children. After becoming involved with Millie, Robert's health fell off like a ski jump. His family noticed that his speech had slurred and he'd been repeatedly in and out of hospital. A later police investigation discovered that on May 28, 2001, Melissa obtained two prescriptions for lorazepam, the less common name for the benzodiazepine Valium. 
Six different times, Melissa got drugs from one doctor and then within 30 days of the first prescription, received another from a different doctor, a practice known as double doctoring, much easier in the days before everything was connected by the internet. In July of 2002, one of Robert's sons, Bob Friedrich, called the elder abuse line in Florida and launched a complaint against Melissa's care of his father, which Bob felt was seriously lacking and suspect. At one point after that, Melissa left a voicemail for one of Robert's sons. He saved it, and it was played on the investigation discovery show Web of Lies. It went, quote, This is Melissa Friedrich calling. I have something to share with you this morning. Your father is going to, um, change his will, and you guys are getting nothing. A big fat zero. So try that on for size and have a nice day, end quote. Robert Friedrich died on December 16, 2002. Friedrich's sons claimed that the family doctor had determined Robert's cause of death over the phone, thinking it was just heart failure as he was an old man. He was 84, after all. Before the family who'd become very suspicious could do anything about it, Melissa had Robert Friedrich cremated. No autopsy or toxicology reports were done, nor are they now possible. Melissa inherited all of Robert's assets, continued to receive Robert Friedrich's social security checks, and moved back to PEI. Over the next couple of years, she traveled back and forth between Canada and the United States. Demanding something be done, Robert Friedrich's relatives had kicked up a stink with the police about Millie. So in relation to the double doctoring, the Manatee County Sheriff's Office in Florida investigated Millie for six counts of doctor shopping, prescription fraud, occurring between March 1st, 2001 and December 1, 2002, only weeks before Robert's death. In January of 2004, Human Resource Development Canada launched an investigation of Melissa, specifically in regard to crimes related to the Old Age Security Act believed to have occurred between July 1997 and 2003. In October of 2004, Dennis Friedrich, one of Robert's sons, received a letter from State's Attorney's Office in Florida. The investigation had completed concerning Millie's alleged prescription fraud, the state attorney indicated that it had chosen not to proceed because they didn't feel they would be able to prove the charges against Melissa. The Friedrichs were disgusted that Millie had just slithered away. They strongly believed that Melissa had killed Robert and had gotten away with it. Millie wasn't done, though. Not by a long shot. And we'll take a break right here. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. Matthew, do you have any thoughts on this so far? And I, I'm pretty sure that you do. Yeah. Because uh, your, your mom was remarried when she was older, right? Yeah. So, yes. I think, so my mother's not elderly. No. She's in her 70s. Sure, sure. Right? But, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm, I totally understand what the kids of these men are going through yeah yeah because you know i was in the uk when my mom met somebody yep 
and soon, like literally a yeah. few weeks later, mm -hmm. it was like, we're moving in together. Uh, ah, right? yeah. Yep. So I called my brother <laughs> and I sent him to quote, how do I put this nicely, interview this fellow. Yeah. I.e., you know, what are your intentions? What's your financial situation? Sure. Open your book. Yeah. And he did. And I'm, I'm proud to say mm -hmm. that I proudly call this man Ray my stepfather now. Yeah, Ray's a good guy. He, I met is, him. he is an amazing human being, but it's only because I didn't know him, right? Sure. And, and it's turned out great. And I love having him as part of my family. He was here to, yeah. we, we went to rugby yes. with him. Yep. Great guy. But I think, you know, I think people need to help their aging parent, you know, in this new world to make sure they don't get taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. Yep. I have seen it over and over and over again. Yeah. Someone professes romance to yeah. a parent or to an older person mm -hmm. over the internet. There's no video. There's nothing. Yeah. There's just a lot of chitty chat back and forth. Yeah. And before you know it, the person is asking for money. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, or something like that. We'll get into protecting oneself. But it's great. You know, my mom and Ray both locked out. They found mm -hmm. each other and it's a great relationship. And my husband and I met online as well. Yeah. And we've been together 17 years, right? Yeah. yeah. And so not all online relationships are terrible or yeah, bad. Yeah, but this woman is, oh God, are you going to put this picture of her on the, on the, um. I kind of think I should in a way. She has cold dead eyes. Yeah. There's, there's something not right about, I, I put a picture in the script when I sent it to Matthew of her and every other aspect of her looks like happy little old granny. You yeah. know, she would give you a crocheted blanket for Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. Except when you look into her eyes, they are dead. There is nothing in there They're other like, than, uh, I am a black hole. Yeah. They, I mean, her eyes are like deader than Reba McIntyre's. <laughs> right. <laughs> Poor Reba. You lay off Reba McIntyre. I'm sure she's a nice lady. I'm sure she is. Throughout 2004, Melissa, now going by Friedrich, initiated internet contact with as many as 20 men from across the United States and Canada using dating sites. In October 2004, RCMP visited Melissa at her home in PEI to ask her questions about their investigation into old age security fraud. Melissa, probably thinking her goose might be cooked and that she had to get out of Dodge, started trolling for men south of the border. When Millie met 73-year-old Alexander Stratagos, he was in failing health and lonely. Most of his medical issues were complications of his long-term battle with diabetes. He'd had several strokes and had a hard time getting around after knee surgery in a fall. Two years before meeting Millie Friedrich, Alex's son, Dean, decided it might be best if Alex moved closer, and he soon landed in Pinellas Park, Florida, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A friend of the family's, Judy Frock, appeared in Season 4, Episode 4 of the investigation discovery show, Web of Lies, which included Mr. Stratagos' story, saying, quote, Alex is really nice. He has a good sense of humor. It's on the dry side, which I love, end quote. And according to Frock, he spent a lot of time on his computer, it was a bit of a lifeline to the outside world. He enjoyed chatting with old friends. In person, Alex was a rather quiet guy and not a big talker. Dean and his friends were pretty decent company for Alex, but he wanted to have more. Alex had been married twice before, but had been on his own for over a decade. He started hoping he would find some female companionship, a woman around his own age. The internet was in its adolescence. 
These were the days of MySpace, and Facebook had only just been founded by Mark Zuckerberg and his pals. Despite Alex's age, his interest in computers led him to sign up to meet someone on a singles dating site called American Singles. In early October 2004, Melissa Ann Friedrich, now 69, who'd been looking to return to sunnier climbs, responded to Alex's profile. The pair began chatting right away, and the messages between them flew furiously back and forth over the next month or so. Millie, saying she was a recent widow, admitted she'd lived in Bradenton, just a half-hour's drive south of Pinellas Park. She did not offer much other information about what had gone on there, especially anything about Robert's death. She told Alex she'd like to make the 3,200-kilometer drive down from PEI to visit. When Alex told his son Dean and a friend about the impending visitor, Dean was skeptical. It seemed unusual to Dean that a woman who'd never met Alex would offer to make such a long trek to come and visit. Alex sloughed off his son's concerns. On November 5, 2004, Melissa arrived in then-rainy Pinellas Park, driving a brand-new Cadillac. The couple met in person for the first time in a hotel parking lot. They went out for dinner and drinks at a Greek restaurant to celebrate Alex's heritage and their first date. Melissa followed Alex back to his condo, where they had more drinks, and did whatever people do when they're alone and newly infatuated with each other. Melissa also announced, that night, that she'd be staying in Florida with Alex in his condo at 7070 Versailles Street. From Lee Meller's book, Cold North Killers, quote, Coincidentally, it was that very same evening that Strategos took his first of many tumbles, striking his head hard against the floor. In the following months, the former Pittsburgh tax collector would continue to fall, randomly lapsing into confusion and garbling his words. As Strategos had suffered from strokes in the past, nobody thought much of it. The doting Canadian woman was a godsend, cooking for him every day, feeding him ice cream before bed. She was a snappy dresser, too, in her fashionable clothes and auburn wig. Alexander Strategos soon came to believe that nobody had ever loved him like Melissa Friedrich did. He was right. To Dean and friends of the Strategos family, at first, things appeared okay between Melissa and Alex. They seemed to like each other very much. But Alexander was becoming very sick. It wasn't clear to the doctors what was wrong with the senior. Over the next two months, he was hospitalized no less than eight times. As with her other victims, Millie's dark tendrils snaked their way into Alex's life and began quickly sucking away at everything he had. She started introducing herself to neighbors as his wife, which they thought was odd. She'd only been there a few weeks when this started. Millie convinced Alex to sign over the condo to her and coerced the ailing man to sign over, also, the power of attorney, giving her decision-making ability in all of his financial and health-related affairs. Now in complete control of the man's life, Millie had what she wanted. Alex was moved to a nursing home where he received round-the-clock care while doctors tried to figure out what was wrong with him. Nursing staff expressed concerns to Dean about Millie, saying she was claiming to be Alex's wife. This was when Dean was alerted to the fact that Melissa, a woman her father barely knew, had legal control over his dad's life. Dean felt awful that he'd missed the signs. He just wanted Alex to have some happiness in his life after all. A family friend had already talked to a police detective about Alex's unheralded turn for the worse and the strange Canadian woman who'd arrived in his life just before the older man became ill. After a blood test taken at the home, Dean was flagged to the fact that Alex's blood showed extremely high levels of Xanax and Valium, 
two very powerful sedatives in the benzodiazepine family. He did not have prescriptions for either drug and denied any knowledge of having taken any pills. When the police learned of Melissa's nightly ritual of serving him ice cream, they believed they understood the woman's method for delivering the drugs. They also discovered that Millie had been draining Alex's bank accounts, according to Meller, to the tune of $18,000. Melissa later told a CBC reporter, quote, I say that figure is not correct. He didn't have $18,000 for me to clean out. But the evidence seemed to show otherwise. From Lee Meller's Cold North Killers, quote, On January 6, 2005, Melissa Friedrich was finally arrested and charged with exploitation of the elderly. Granted bail at $7,500, she was subsequently placed on hold by the Department of Homeland Security, who had learned that she had lied about her criminal record upon entering the country in 2004. Dean Stratagos undertook a search of his father's condominium and was shocked to discover not only a suitcase full of pills, but that his father's internet homepage had suddenly changed to a Christian single site. The internet black widow was already trawling for her next victim, end quote. Cops were shocked when they learned of Millie's multiple fraud-related and other convictions, numerous aliases, and the suspicious deaths of at least two of her husbands. She was not charged with attempted murder in regard to Alex Stratagos in her predatory dealings with him. The level of drugs that were found in the man's system did not meet the threshold that would indicate it could have caused his death, although it would impair him severely. A month after her Florida arrest, for what she'd done to Alex Stratagos, the RCMP back in Canada issued a warrant for Millie's arrest at home. She was charged with defrauding the government of Canada of $30,348.54 between July 1997 and October 2003. She'd been allegedly collecting checks using two social insurance numbers she had, one under her real name and the other under one of her many aliases. On March 14, 2005, in a plea deal, Melissa pleaded guilty to seven charges, two forgery counts, two counts of using a forged document, and three counts of theft from a senior citizen. She was sentenced to five years in a Florida prison. On April 2, 2009, two days before she was released from prison, the Crown Attorney's Office in Halifax dropped the old-age security fraud charges against Melissa, stating they had not received enough evidence to proceed with any kind of prosecution. After her release from prison, Millie was deported back to Canada. She moved into a retirement community in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, promising to keep her nose clean. She kept that promise for a while, but after only a few years, she was back at it. In the early fall of 2012, Melissa Friedrich, then 77, met a new man. According to Crystal Hawkins from TrueTV.com, quote, Fred Weeks, 75, had lost his wife, of a half a century just 18 months earlier. He kept himself busy with cribbage games and karaoke outings, but he was lonely. He welcomed Millie's attention, marrying her on September 25th after knowing her just a month. But at least one friend was suspicious. George Medjany, a justice of the peace, had seen Millie on a CBC documentary about her alleged crimes, called The Widow's Web. Medjany performed their marriage ceremony, but he asked police to intercept the couple on their way to the ferry that would start their Newfoundland honeymoon trip, and to warn Weeks about his bride's pattern of trouble with the law. Unsurprisingly, the police refused to involve themselves in this errand. Melissa and Fred Weeks checked into the Chambers Guest House in North Sydney, Nova Scotia on September 28th. Millie complained of a rough ferry crossing and said that her husband wasn't feeling well. 
The innkeeper thought she had heard someone fall in the night, but Millie insisted everything was fine. The next morning, she asked the innkeeper to call an ambulance for Fred, but she insisted on finishing her breakfast first. The innkeeper called for the ambulance and the police. Paramedics found Fred Weeks on the floor of the couple's room in the bed and breakfast, weak and disoriented, end quote. Before checking out, Millie wrote in the B&B guestbook that she and Fred had enjoyed a wonderful visit. At the hospital in Sydney, Millie told hospital staff that her husband Fred, who was really out of it, was suffering from Alzheimer's and had no family other than her. She claimed he was on a lot of medication. From Webs of Black Widows by Pete Katz, quote, But the information was incorrect. It did not take much research to realize that Fred had both a son and a daughter. They were astonished to hear of his illness and supposed record of failing health. Fred was a tough old bird, one whose only complaint was a tendency toward high cholesterol. But it was no surprise to those who knew of Millie to discover Fred Weeks' toxicology report. His body was full of very high levels of benzodiazepine, Millie's drug of choice, end quote. Police decided they'd hold Millie and look into the grinning granny a little further. According to Crystal Hawkins of TrueTV.com, during a search of their belongings, police found 144 tablets of lorazepam, a small amount of temazepam, three unlabeled empty bottles, prescriptions from five different doctors, and a suspicious tub of ice cream that would have to be analyzed. There was not enough to charge Millie with attempted murder, but on June 10, 2013, Millie pleaded guilty to administering a noxious substance and failing to provide the necessities of life. She was sentenced to another three years in jail. Fred Weeks spoke out in a 2013 CBC article warning that he believed Millie would do it again if given a chance. Quote, She just wanted to know if I was lonesome the same way she was. Yeah, she was very nice to talk to, said Weeks. She had a little religion in there. She was talking like she was always religious. That was the first lie. Just exactly what she did, he said, was trying to kill me. There's no doubt in my mind. I think she's a wicked woman. She's not safe with any man. And she will do it again. That's my opinion. End quote. Their marriage was later ruled invalid by Nova Scotia's Vital Statistics Division, indicating that false information had been provided on the marriage certificate. We're not sure what that was. In the aforementioned interview with Lyndon McIntyre, Millie gave a lot of insight into her behavior, perhaps the best yet, without taking any responsibility for her actions, blaming it squarely on her upbringing. To McIntyre's question, what is wrong with you? Millie responded, what is the matter with me? I believe it all goes back to when I was a child, when I was a baby. I was born to an 18-year-old girl who was an alcoholic. I was born at home. I was left, abandoned at my grandmother's. I was raised there with a known pedophile who had already been convicted of being a pedophile who abused me sexually from the time I was very little. And my grandmother allowed that to happen. She allowed him to be in the house for many years. When I was five years old, my uncle, my mother's brother, he raped and sodomized me one day. And then he became afraid that I would tell on him. He told me, he would kill me if I did not keep quiet about that. Then I didn't say anything, but he ran away and joined the army. I never got any treatment for those kinds of things happening to me. I never got any kind of psychiatric or mental treatment that would help me to cope with things like that. I did confront my uncle about this some years. I confronted him about that and he denied it, of course. But that's the way my background was. 
That's the way my childhood had been. I think I had a lot of anger in me toward men because of those things. I couldn't have any power over what they were doing to me, but I think I had begun to have a lot of anger inside me. End quote. Okay, so... She's not really taking responsibility for what she's done here. She, in all these quotes that you've been talking about, mm -hmm. I've been sitting here listening. Yeah. Like, every single thing is sort of prevaricating or lessening or shifting blame. Yeah. Right? I think, first of all, mm -hmm. right, with her proven incessant lying... Yes. You know, I find all of this childhood story hard to believe. Yeah. Maybe some of it happened. Maybe some of it didn't. It's pretty extreme. Who knows? Yeah. But even all of this, even if all of this is true, and what about personal responsibility for who you are now? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you started these evil things. They didn't begin in the past. You know, you can look back to explain things, but the explanation kind of disappears when it, when it's when when you're an adult and you're doing these things, right? Yep. Responsibility begins here and now with you. I'm a firm believer in this. Yeah, we've all had hard times, right? Mm -hmm. That's the birth of responsibility. When when you kind of go, okay, my past is my past, but it doesn't make me have to be a certain way. No, any of us can go. Well, I'm the way I am because my mother dropped me, and she dropped me because she was neurotic because her mother dropped her. And you can go back and back and back to Adam and Eve or a disappearing monkey or something, right? Like, like you can just you can <laughs> you can you know like evolution. You can go yeah. back in time forever, and mm -hmm. and you can like claim, oh, like it's none of this is my fault because it goes back to that disappearing monkey. Yep. Well, no, no, no. You did these things now. Mm -hmm. It was your responsibility. That's right. Yeah. Right? That pisses me off. According to an article in the National Post in 2016, after her release, the court worked out some conditions that Millie was to follow. The article stated that Millie agreed to peace bond conditions that require her to report any new romantic relationships to police for the next two years. Shepard, who is also known as the Internet Black Widow, used a walker in court to stand and agree to the 21 conditions negotiated between the Crown and Shepard's lawyer, Mark Knox. Under the bond conditions, she is required to report to police any potential relationship with a man and to report weekly to police by telephone or in person. She is also to inform police of any changes to her appearance and provide them with fresh photographs. In August of that year, Millie Shepard had pleaded not guilty to violating previous imposed court conditions by allegedly using a computer at the Halifax Central Library. Who knows what she was up to? Those charges were dropped on December 22, 2016. It's tough to prepare oneself for meetings with predators as savvy as Melissa Ann Shepard. Millions of people worldwide use internet dating apps every day, as well as hundreds of millions who use social media sites. While many of the folks on these apps and sites use them for good reasons like staying in touch with friends and family, meeting new people with like interests, or finding the love of one's life, they are also a tool used by predators to lure the unsavvy and unsuspecting. Pretty much anyone who's used any form of social media for any extended period has had a bad experience with someone online. If you haven't, you will. So how do we take preventative measures and keep ourselves safe? I did find some tips on protecting oneself from internet predators when I stumbled onto a great little guide on the RAINN.org site. RAIN is a U.S.-based rape, abuse, and incest national network. 
It is that nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. As well as running the National Sexual Assault Hotline, RAIN also carries out programs to prevent sexual violence, help survivors, and ensure that perpetrators are brought to justice. Below are some steps that you can take to increase your safety when interacting with others through online dating apps and services, whether you are interacting virtually or in person. Like any safety tips, they are not a guarantee, but they may help you to feel more secure. For example, they suggest you use different photos for your social media and dating profiles. Avoid connecting with suspicious profiles, check out your potential date on social media, and block and report any suspicious users. As with any personal interaction, it's always possible for people to misrepresent themselves. Trust your instincts about whether you feel someone is really who they say they are. The list below offers a few examples of some common stories or suspicious behaviors scammers may use to build trust and sympathy so they can manipulate another user in an unhealthy way. For example, they may ask for financial assistance in any way because of a sudden personal crisis. They claim to be from the United States or Canada, but are currently living, working, or traveling abroad. They claim to be recently widowed with children. They disappear suddenly from the site and then reappear under a different name. They give vague answers to specific questions. They're overly complimentary and romantic too early in communication. They pressure you into providing your phone number or talking outside the dating app or site. They request your home or work address under the guise of sending flowers or gifts. They tell inconsistent or grandiose stories. They use disjointed language and grammar but, but seem to have a high level of education. Examples of user behavior that you may want to report include requests for financial assistance, requests for photographs, if someone is a minor, someone is sending harassing or offensive messages, they're attempting to threaten or intimidate you in any way, they seem to have created a fake profile, or they're trying to sell you products or services. Wait until you share personal information. Don't respond to requests for financial help. Obviously, meeting people in person puts you in a much more vulnerable position. So, when meeting in person, video chat before you meet up. Once you've matched with a potential date and chatted, consider scheduling a video chat with them before meeting up in person for the first time. This can be a good way to help ensure that your match is who they claim to be in their profile. If they strongly resist a video call, that could be a sign of suspicious activity. Tell a friend where you're going. Take a screenshot of your date's profile and send it to a friend. Let at least one friend know where and when you plan to go on your date. If you continue your date in another place you hadn't planned on, text a friend to let them know your new location. It may also be helpful to arrange to text or call a friend partway through the date or when you get home to check in. Meet in a public place. For your first date, avoid meeting someone you don't know well in your home, apartment, or workplace. It may make both you and your date feel more comfortable to meet in a coffee shop, restaurant, or bar with plenty of people around. Avoid meeting in public parks or other isolated locations for first dates. Don't rely on your date for transportation. It's important that you're in control of your own transportation to and from the date so that you can leave whenever you want and do not have to rely on your date in case you start feeling uncomfortable. Even if the person you're meeting volunteers to pick you up, avoid getting into a vehicle with someone you don't know and trust, especially if it's the first meeting. Have a few rideshare apps downloaded on your phone so in case one's not working when you need it, you'll have a backup. 
make sure you have data on your phone and it's fully charged, or consider bringing your charger or a portable battery with you. Stick to what you're most comfortable with. There's nothing wrong with having a few drinks on a date. Try to keep your limits in mind and do not feel pressured to drink just because your date is drinking. It can also be a good idea to avoid taking drugs before or during a first date with someone new because drugs could alter your perception of reality or have unexpected interactions with alcohol. Enlist the help of a bartender or waiter. If you feel uncomfortable in a situation, it can help to find an advocate nearby. You can enlist the help of a waiter or bartender to help you create a distraction, call the police, or get a safe ride home. Trust your instincts. If you feel uncomfortable, trust your instincts and feel free to leave a date or cut off communication with whoever is making you feel unsafe. Do not worry about feeling rude. Your safety is most important and your date should understand that. If you felt uncomfortable or unsafe during the date, remember, you can always unmatch, block, or report your match after meeting up in person, which will keep them from being able to access your profile in the future. Have you had any weird experiences online with people reaching out to you or anything like that? <laughs> of course I have. Okay, so if you're comfortable talking about any of them, what's one that kind of stands out in your mind? Justin, I met online. Before that, I was like online meeting people, dating sure. people. Yeah. And I had been in situations where I showed up mm -hmm. and literally the person was absolutely not the person fake photographs oh wow thinking i wouldn't notice that the person's completely different and I, right yeah and that he'd get lucky or something huh. and i just walk away i'm like how do you think by putting fake photos yeah that when the person meets you like it's how do you think that's gonna work right like why well, i don't understand. yeah it is really weird right i had a recent thing where a guy reached out to me on twitter and said that he wants me to help him with a podcast. And I was like, okay, let, let's look into this guy. So I started doing my little Google foo and researching this person. And he's talking about drugs. He's talking about the downtown east side a lot. Mm -hmm. He's also talking about, he wants to do a podcast about rapping. So he's also talking about wanting to, quote, turn out girls on the downtown east side. What does turn out mean? He wants to pimp them. And he thinks you will help him? He thinks I will become involved with him. And in one of his tweets, he actually says, I am the second coming of Christ. Oh, he needs help. He needs a lot of help. Yeah. So I immediately blocked that person. I don't know what else to do. I can't contact the police and say, this guy wants to turn out no. girls on the downtown. There was no evidence of him doing anything wrong. Yeah. And he's on Twitter. He could be just saying... Those things. He was not threatening anybody. He did never threaten me, but I felt threatened by <laughs> by yeah. the by the messages from him. Yeah. So I ignored them and blocked him. And that's it for episode one hundred and ninety nine, Canadian Black Widow, Melissa Ann Shepherd. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week.
Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Leah Moon calling from Stainer, Ontario. I just wanted to start off by saying how much I enjoy this podcast. It's actually the first podcast I've ever listened to and kind of started my new obsession. But I kind of wanted to share a story uh, from when I was about eight years old. So a little background first. Uh, my mo- mom was born <laughs> excuse me, in the mid-70s and uh, had me quite young. And she was quite obsessed with true crime. And unfortunately, kind of raised me to be terrified of people. So in 1999, we lived in a small town called Beansville, Ontario, which is about 25 minutes away from St. Catharines. My mom was reading the novel uh, about Carla Mocha and Paul Bernardo. And for whatever reason, she wanted to go see that house. So we're outside that house, and my mom shows me a picture of the two of them. And she asks me, do these look like nice people to you? You know, me being eight years old, I was like, yeah, yeah, they look nice. And, well, my mom (laughs) proceeded to tell me about their horrendous crimes that took place in that house. So that image of that house is seared into my brain. Even though it's no longer there, I still remember what it looks like. So I never really knew why she raised me to be so terrified. Um, But once I started listening to this podcast, it just kind of made sense. The time that she grew up was actually a pretty scary place. And, you know, a lot of these things were still new uh, to the general public. Um, So thank you very much for providing that insight for me uh, and, you know, connecting some dots. I love the podcast. I love what you guys do. You know, you guys do amazing work. You're so nice and respectful. So have a lovely day. And don't forget to leave some scat in your hat. Bye. (laughs) Oh, that was funny. Scanny hat. Scoobity-doo-bop. Scoobity-boop-boop-da-bop. Thank you. She's from Stainer, Ontario. Yeah. And interesting, uh, she said, I twigged on, and I think we both did, that her mom was born in the mid-70s, making us older than her. Yeah, I was like, oh. So people who we are old I, enough I to have. is old. People we're old enough to have parented are calling into the show. Kind of cool. But that was kind of like. I'm I'm actually laughing. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, do these look like nice people? <laughs> this Bernard. is what they did. She's like eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. That's funny, though. That is scary. Anyway. The Barbie uh, and they call them like the, the Ken, Ken and Barbie, Barbie killers. Murders. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I do plan on us doing some episodes on them. You kind of, well, as yeah. a Canadian true crime podcast, we actually kind of have to. Yeah. And right. and that's why I've avoided one, it because we have ones. to. We do have to do it. Yeah, right? I mean, we did Russell Williams recently, and and uh, because we had to. Yeah, kind of thing. And I I think people are looking for our take on these cases anyway, so yeah. we will do them. Uh, here's another voicemail. <laughs> Gosh, that cracks me up. Um, hi, this is Deb Rouston. I'm from um, Michigan, right across the lake, and I have, uh, I think I called you guys once before, but I wanted to call and tell you guys that I got interested in what a Nanaimo bar was, and I looked up the recipe, because I'm really into baking lately, and uh, they are fabulous. That is a fabulous cookie or a bar that Canada, I guess, is known for. Um, 
I had heard about the massacre that occurred at the factory there. And that really piqued my interest. But I wanted you guys to know that I think you guys are a great duo. I just love Matthew. He is He's just awesome. And the show is always so interesting and informative. So, but I just wanted to share that I made the Nanaimo bars. And if you want, I'll send you some. But you have to let me know if you're interested in uh, homemade ones. Because I know a lot of people buy the ones from the factory. So, anyway, you guys have uh, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Even though you don't celebrate it, you can still have a wonderful day. And I enjoy your podcast very much. Bye. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So much. That was really, really nice. And um, we love your Michigan accent. It reminds Matthew. me. Of, it reminds me of my my relatives. Yeah. You know, my my grandmother was from Michigan, and uh, um, near Cadillac. So I had uh, lots of like great great aunts and uncles in Michigan. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's sort of nice to hear that accent. It reminds me of my yeah. my American family. Yeah, it's really nice to get uh, messages like this one, especially somebody who tried Nanaimo bars. I mean, Nanaimo bars are an interesting thing. I prefer a butter tart to a Nanaimo bar. But I don't like Nanaimo bars at all. Yeah. Um, I like but I like all d- things that take the form of dessert. Butter in some tarts. Way. I love. So do you like raisins in your butter tarts or no? Either way. I'm not a big raisin fan. Look My like grandmother Ray- used to make the best butter tarts and her last name was Buttery. Oh. So we call them Buttery Tarts. Buttery tarts. Well, we, it's buttery, but we call it buttery tarts. Well, that's nice. Um, but we do celebrate Thanksgiving. We yeah, just do we, it. We, we just do, do it earlier. earlier. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. While the Americans are celebrating other things, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And then, yeah, we talked about that a bit before, how uh, the holidays are so close together in yeah. the U.S. But yeah. I guess it's just like the holidays it's start. different. Yeah. And I've celebrated American Thanksgiving before. Carol and I went to... Uh, Las Vegas one time on American Thanksgiving and we had okay. a big Thanksgiving dinner down there at one of the casinos. And, yeah. And the Canadian Thanksgiving was, it's it actually the beginning of it is compl- very different from American. Mm-hmm. It was originally a party to celebrate the um, going through the Northern Passage. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was never about pilgrims and all this stuff. It's actually, and it was more of a harvest festival as well. The Franklin expedition. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, but thank you for your call. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Now it's on to a Patreon and our donut money donors for the week. First up, we have Ficacia. Ficacia. And she doesn't have a last name. Okay. I know she probably goes by she. She may be they. Mm-hmm. That person may be they because I see what appears to be someone who is female in their profile picture. Okay. So Ficacia. I don't know where Ficacia is from. I do. Where is she from? She's from Pigeonhole, Australia. Pigeonhole, Australia. Yeah. What happens in Pigeonhole, Australia? What well, does she do? It's beside the Victoria River. Okay. It's in northern. It's in the Northern Territory. Yep. And I think I think she um, farms. Well, there you go. Yep. Yeah, farmers are uh, 
people who are not don't get don't get the cred that they should. I I'm think from a long line of farmers. There you go. Yep. I'm pretty certain that I have some farmers in my background. I know I have fishermen in my background. I spent my summers bailing hay. There you go. Bailing. And when you bailed hay, did you say bailing hay? <laughs> what do straight horses eat? Uh, hay. Hay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Help. Next up, we have from Orangeville, Ontario. Orangeville. Kate Trombley. Kate Orangey Glad. That Kate uh, called in. No, she didn't call in. She's a patron. Orangey Glad that Kate became a Patreon. Yes, I am. Me too. Yeah. And so what does Kate do there in Orangeville, close to where our serial killer from one of our episodes, David Snow, did some nasty things? Yeah, she she hasn't, well, what do you do in Orangeville? She has an orange orchard. Oh, I thought there was a lot of antique dealers around Orangeville, but I guess if she's got an orange orchard, someone's got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to keep the name up. Absolutely. There you go. Um, next, we, uh, and that's it for patrons. Let's move on to Thank our you guys. donut money donors. And we have some great ones this week. Donuts. Holy crap. Donuts. Wow. People are so kind. Good. Uh, we needed donuts this week. Yeah, Lori St. Germain. Hello, Lori. Who were, oh, oh no, we've already done her. We've already done her? Yeah. First up, we have Alyssa Kristovich. And oh. Alyssa is from New Orleans, United States, and Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> you and your accent. And she says, hey, Alyssa Kristovich, coming to you from New Orleans, no need to guess my profession. I'm an engineering manager at a research tech company. Thank you. Wow. I wonder what she researches what what sort of engineering is uh, it is it like structural or I, I, she sounds mechanical like, she sounds like she has an iq that is double yours and mine combined oh dear so i wouldn't even suggest what kind <laughs> she of she got a big old does. head that doesn't <laughs> yeah. yeah that won't fit through the door <laughs> thank you okay so next up we have Somebody who doesn't want us to use her name. And we're re-recording this because we didn't read the message until, until <laughs> exactly. later that she didn't want her name used. So we're going to thank you. You know who you are, but go ahead. She says... She, she's uh, from Lenexa, isn't she? Yeah, she's from Lenexa, Kansas. And she says, I just listened to episode 193 and sad you did not get any donut money. So here <laughs> oh. you go. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. I love it. Yeah, it's neat. Thank you so much. And... Unknown. Well, we know, so... You're in our hearts. Exactly. And from Duval, Washington, our friend Denise gave us a massive donation. Thank you so Was much. Is Sakaki? Yes. Oh, I love Denise her. Sakaki. Timbits for everyone. Love to Team Poutine. For Christmas, I'm getting your book for my true crime loving mama who can't listen to podcasts because my parents are an- analog AF. <laughs> they don't have the internet, so they can't hear me making fun of them. Yes, I I'm. Love it. I'm one that tracked down and bought my mother an electric typewriter. My uncle Don, my dad's brother, worked at Polson Typewriters in Vancouver for years and years and years. He was one of the last typewriter technicians in Canada. He held on to that job. He, he held on to that job for a very long, t- a long time. So, Denise, Unk the hunk. Denise. Yes. So, Denise, are you saying... Your parents do not have... That's what she says. They interweb. don't have the internet. Wow. I don't know anybody's parents who don't have the internet. Well, 
Wow. Unless, yeah. That is like really. Yeah, but how do you live without the internet? Probably happily. Or you rely on Denise <laughs> to get your shit for you. Exactly. <laughs> Probably very happily. Actually, yes. But I mean, yeah, actually, yeah, my palms are sweating mm -hmm. because that feeling of no internet makes my palms sweat. Yeah. Like, how am I going to watch my body cam? Uh, show on or Discovery how am Plus. I going to get my groceries? How am I going to find a dog sitter? How am I going to? Well, I know how to do all that without the internet. Oh, I don't. Oh, if I... you go to like sometimes, if you go to a grocery store or a community place, they'll have like people offering services like dog sitting that you just tear off a little tag, paper tag, and call a phone number. Okay, and they will say, "I want to sit your dog." Is he worth, um, is he a foul one? Is, but, do you think the meat is marbly? But with... <laughs> I'm going to eat him. But oh, I wouldn't even be able to work. I'm going to eat your dog, Matthew. <laughs> are, are bulldogs good eating? No, they're not. I think that Steve looks like he would make a yummy, yummy little dog. Mm. How did you get to this place? I don't know. He would look good. <laughs> he would look good with some potatoes and carrots. Oh, don't talk about Steve. Oh, I love that. Steve. I want to give him a hug and then I'm going to eat him. Eat him up. Hilarious. Anyway, no internet. That's fascinating. Right? So thank you. Thank you so much, Denise. Thanks, Denise. Much appreciated. As always. As always. And that is it. Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please buy my book. A reminder, it's an important thing to me that you buy my book. Somebody's dog ate my book. Anyway. Did you see that? That's hilarious. Yeah, it is funny. Uh, so yeah, you can get that anywhere now. Um, yeah. I tried to feed mine to Steve. He, he wasn't hungry. He wasn't interested. No, that's too bad. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.